This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Good morning. My name is Linda Keller, and I will be reading today's scripture from Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. And if you want to follow along in your pew Bible, you can find the scripture on page 808. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that was what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Pray with me one more time. Father, now as we turn to your word, would you speak to us by your spirit, uh, this passage about your son, uh, his early life. Uh, would you speak to us about our lives and what we need? Um, I pray you'd open up our hearts to be able to believe, that you would speak to us in ways that change us, um, and that you would give us receptive hearts and hearts that feel welcomed by you. This text um, communicates to us that you know what it's like to live in obscurity. And you know what it's like to have years past that are unmarked in a lot of ways. Um, so uh, you care about those moments in our life. We, we pray you give us hope to bring our whole heart to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you're new with us, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. We are journeying through the book of Matthew, and we are hitting a section now at the very end of the introduction where we've been hearing about who Jesus is and what his life is like. We've seen a genealogy, which is this long list kind of declaring this is the rightful true king. We've seen Jesus' birth as the fulfillment of lots of prophecies, and we've seen conflict right away. So kind of surprising to us, maybe in a sentimental culture that celebrates just nice, sweet-tasting wrapped up things at Christmas to see actually war and fighting going on around this baby Jesus. So we've been confronted with the idea that this is a man that you can't just have thoughts about. You have to do something with him. You either worship him or you go to war against him. And what we've been seeing is that this man Herod has caused all kinds of trouble, all kinds of chaos, all kinds of pain, all kinds of murder. And now the family has been moved out towards Egypt. They've actually been in exile. So Joseph and Mary and Jesus are warned that Herod is on the warpath. They pack up and they flee, right? So just stop for a moment and say, our Savior grew up as an exile, as a refugee. He knows what it's like to be forced out of his home, what it's like to face all kinds of tension and pressure, what it's faced... What's like to face all kinds of things you can't control, to feel like a victim, to feel like you had to escape, to feel undone in some places. That's actually the early years of our Savior's life. And so there's lots of instruction for us around what that was like, why he came like that, and what that means for how he 
relates to us. And so if you're brand new, we just drop in verse 19, maybe seem kind of strange to start with this guy named Herod who died, but that, that is kind of been the one who represents the evil one, the, the forces that are pushing back against the kingdom of God. It's the one who actually went on this warpath and has a ton of power. And so to stop and just hear these words that Herod has limits, that the thing that's most scary to us actually has a shelf life, that it's not eternal, the thing that, mo- that we most fear actually has a way that it will, it will pass away. Like the scriptures are full of examples and psalms and sayings that say things like um, the evil will be rolled up like a scroll or they're like grass that's here today and then gone tomorrow or it's like a snow that actually melts. It doesn't have eternal staying power. And so as we've been walking through this, what Matthew wants to show us is that the, the biggest, scariest thing about Jesus' life actually has some... Uh, shelf life to it. And, and then we get brought into this idea that Jesus lives in obscurity for some 90% of his life. So just this last verse here in verse 23, in this one verse we cover some 30 years of Jesus' life. So we've been in two chapters for his birth. Verse 23 of chapter 2 says this, and he went and lived in that city called Nazareth so that he was, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And then chapter 3 picks up when Jesus is about 30 years old. So in this one little paragraph, what we have is about 90% of Jesus' life covered, which I think is fascinating on a week like this coming into the new year when we're tempted to make goals and we're going to think about our juice fast and we're looking at exercise equipment and we're thinking about all the things we're going to change, things we want to get over. Into that space, we get a passage that talks about obscurity, commonness. Uh, decades that pass that are almost not even noteworthy, not, not insignificant, not that nothing is happening, but it's, it's mundane, it, it's normal, it's common, it's obscure. And I think for Matthew to bring us into that gives us permission to examine our lives and say, what do we do in moments of hiddenness? How do we think about moments of obscurity? What do we do in places and seasons of life where we feel like it's just common? Where is God in that? How do we relate to that? What do we learn about our our Savior living three decades almost in silence? What does that say about how God works and what he has for us? That's what we get to explore this morning. And again, I love the timing that it puts us in this season right before the new year. Are you guys resolutions makers and breakers and keepers and all of that? You're kind of in that endless cycle of things that you wish were different and things you're already plotting. Like I was asking about Hey, is the protein powder going to be on sale? Because i got to get back on track and all that. So we have these goals that we have set for us already. And so for this text to hit us in a timed way, you would think I was really clever and put that on purpose, but we actually just got lucky. We got lucky in this text. It was just the next text. We won't always get so lucky as we work through passages. I was part of another church, and we were teaching through 1 Corinthians, and it was Mother's Day. And the text had us in that church discipline passage where the guy is being excommunicated because of incest with his stepmom, which is a strange like Mother's Day passage, right? So we won't, we won't always get lucky when we work through verse by verses of the Bible, but this one puts us in a spot where we get to see Jesus in this kind of obscure place. And it gives us an opportunity to say, what's 2020 been like for you? H- hasn't it been a lot of hiddenness? Hasn't there been a lot of loss? Hasn't there been places where you used to be able to be with people and now you're by yourself? Whether it was just last week with Christmas or, or with your job, there has been an inordinate amount of loneliness and commonness and mundaneness. 
things that you're used to doing, that you feel a lot of loss that got taken from you this year, this passage actually speaks into that. So, so God's the kind of God that cares about obscurity. He's not only working in these high moments that uh, get, make the newspaper. He's actually at work in the mundane. He's actually at work in the common places, which, friends, most of our life is spent in those spots. I'm, I'm putting 90% on this, right, to say Jesus was about 33, scholars think, when he died. He got about three years of public ministry, which means about 30 years covered in this section. So for 90% of his life, it's not something that's written about. You get a couple of scenes in Luke, but there's just not much. And, and that actually is our lives. So, so here's what I want to do. I want to walk through the passage and just say, what is Matthew doing with some observations? And then I want to talk about some implications and then some applications. So, so first, observations. Just what do we see in the text? So look with me in verse 19 of chapter 2. Here again, this idea that Herod died. Simple. That the biggest enemy, the biggest threat, the thing that was most scary perished. I think that's significant for you just to have hope. I don't know what you're most afraid of. I don't know what keeps you up at night, but it's not eternal unless it is your distance from God. Right? The things that threaten you are not eternal things. God is the only one who is eternally offers you eternal life and rescue. So that means the temporal things that you struggle with, whether it's struggles in your marriage, in your body, in your job, in your finances, those things don't have eternal power over you. There's some hope and comfort in obscurity to know the thing that is most frightening to me doesn't have ultimate power. That's one observation. And, and then we see in the middle of this obscurity that God still speaks. Right? So when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and told him to rise and take his child and go back to Israel. In this obscure place, in this common place, God is still speaking. It's not absent of God's interaction. So we don't mean mundane or obscure, meaning no activity. What we mean is hidden activity where the deep things actually take place. But God is actively at work in the obscure and in the mundane. And so we see twice in these verses, angels speak, God breaks through. And better than just angels, we actually have God's eternal word and God's spirit to help us understand that word and the community of God to help us apply that word. God still speaks in the mundane and in the obscure. That's another observation. And then we, we hear about Joseph, right? He hits this dream. He's been in this really scary situation. God comes and speaks to him and says, I want you to go back to where you had to flee from. And he just gets up and obeys. You see obedience in the middle of obscurity, right? You see God says something and Joseph gets up and goes. And yet he actually, as he goes, he obeys, but it's not in the absence of fear. He hears that Herod's son is ruling and reigning. And you see that in verse 22, and he was afraid. So as he's obeying, he had some fear, which means our obedience is not the absence of fear. Right? In these obscure common places, it's not sinful for you to be concerned, for you to wonder where God is, for you to ask and cry out to him and say, God, I don't know what to do in this spot. I'm trying to follow you. I heard your voice. I'm moving towards what you called me to, and I feel undone. I feel really uneasy. I feel like I don't have what it takes. I feel threatened. Right? He feels afraid, and into that space, God speaks to him again. In, in these obscure times when our hearts are struggling, what we see is that God cares about how we feel and he interacts with us in that spot. So Joseph obeys, which I love that Jesus' stepdad was an obedient man. We talked about that early on. And then he's an honest man. 
He, he feels some fear and some uncertainty, and he cries out, and God speaks to him as well, right? So in obscurity, obedience can still have uncertainty and fear, and God wants to meet you there. God actually meets Joseph in that place, right? There's another observation. And then we'll just look here in verse 23 for our final observation of this text. He says that they went to go back and live in the city called Nazareth, so what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Uh, we have to unpack this word just for a moment. So scholars take a, some time in commentaries just to go, hey, what's going on here? Because you don't actually have a verse in the Old Testament that says the Messiah would be a Nazarene. He's not quoting something. So actually, look at the text with me. Do you see that little S at the end of prophets? Scholars would say the way Matthew has written this is saying, hey, a summary of what the prophets have said is that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. And you still go, okay, I don't really understand it. To be a Nazarene actually would have been backwoods, podunk, country boy, wrong side of the tracks, obscure, scorned, shamed. It would be you not being from the big city. It would be you being from the outskirts. It would be you, whoever you look down upon growing up, of, well, at least we're not from there. That's Nazareth. So what he's saying here is that for the Old Testament to say Jesus would be called a Nazarene is a summary way of saying Jesus would be held in contempt. He would be scorned. He would be rejected. This Nazarene becomes code for whatever it is in our culture that we look down upon. There have been seasons in our, our country's history, right, where there were some, some racial slurs that would have been used, right? Whatever that was that, like, elicits this kind of visceral reaction to hear someone's from there, that's what this text is saying. So our Messiah, the one who actually came to rescue and save us, comes from a place of scorn and shame. Tons of implications for us there, but let me just read a couple passages, right? So these are what the prophets have said. This is Psalm 22.6. Speaking of the Messiah, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by my people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. Right? Jesus would actually quote Psalm 22 on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? He's quoting that Psalm, Isaiah 49, 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised and abhorred by the nation. Isaiah 53, 3 says, And he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their face. So much scorn, they actually hide their face. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And then we even see in the Gospels, like in 1 John, or John chapter 1, Nathaniel says, Hey, can, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? Can anything come out of this podunk town where the Messiah claims to be from? What Matthew is saying is, Hey, this has always been part of the plan of God. Just like the genealogy was planned, just like these prophecies of, of King David and Abraham and Moses and Adam, those prophecies that we've been looking at, it's also prophesied that the Messiah would be scorned and rejected which says a ton to us about who God is, who he came to relate to, what it means for those places where you feel ostracized and undone. To be a Nazarene would be an insult. Have you ever been insulted like for where you're from? Uh, so my dad was in the military, so he moved around a ton. So I'm kind of like from nowhere. So my accent can kind of shift and pivot depending on where I am. So I was born in North Carolina, and then we moved to Australia. So I had a really funky Southern Australian accent for a while and then we moved from Germany to Oklahoma and I came kind of middle school and high school so 90s country music driving a pickup truck I had a full-on southern Oklahoma accent 
And then I went to school outside of Chicago, which is a very different kind of accent. And there are two moments in my life where I experienced like scorn from where I'm from. One was when I was in high school, we took a mission trip to Chicago. We're doing street evangelism, just sharing the gospel with people, which is kind of a bizarre experience as a high school kid. But as we're talking, and we're from Oklahoma, we sat down with this pack of teenagers on a Friday night at this river walk in Naperville, Illinois. People were out just hanging out, having a good time, and we're trying to share the gospel with them. And this group kind of gathered around us. And at the time, I didn't realize they were making fun of us, but they started going like, oh, you're from Oklahoma. Did the Indians like shoot bows and arrows at you as you guys came across the border? Like, were you being chased on horses as you came? And I thought, oh, you're so out of date. You have no idea. We're way modern Oklahoma. I remember like, thinking like as a 15-year-old, oh, you don't understand what Oklahoma's like. But actually, now I realize they were mocking me for my, my accent. Another time I'm in Chicago and I had a chance to usher at a Bears game. So it was some kind of a fundraiser for the Boy Scouts or something. I have no idea. All I know is I got to wear a yellow blazer and got to watch the Bears game from like back in the tunnel. So I'm back there watching the game and I'm trying to give instructions. And you can think like all the spoofs of like Chicago accents, right? How thick that is. And they had the audacity to begin to mock me. So at one point, this dude with a huge Chicago accent goes, oh man, where are you from? And does that deal just kind of say some shade on my background? And I thought like, You've been screaming, throw the ball, you bomb, the whole time, and you're going to make fun of my accent, for real? But, but my accent gave me away, and I remember just feeling like a little bit, not like less than, but a little bit embarrassed in that moment. Okay, super small moments. Imagine for 30 years, you are from this town, and everybody who hears the name of that town immediately thinks they're better than you, looks down upon you, has scorn for you. Our Savior grew up in that kind of environment. And what Matthew wants you to know with this fifth quote of prophecy is that was God's design. So our observations just kind of bring us to a place of going, hey, God is doing something by having his son not just born into a poor family with a chaotic government that he would actually have to flee the scene to keep himself safe, that he was a refugee and an exile He actually was from this backwoods town that would bring scorn his entire life. Just stop for a second. This is the king of the universe, the one who made everything, the one the scriptures say hold the entire universe in his hands, and he is the one who would come from a place that would um, speak of ordinary, obscure, scorn, somehow less than. Those are observations. So, So what are the implications of that? We're actually talking about the implications of the incarnation, the fact that Jesus came and took on flesh and lived this life. He actually lived the life that we should have lived, died a death that we should have died so that you and I could be rescued and freed. Have you ever just stopped and thought about the fact that the divine one who is eternal came through the birth canal into our world? He came as a baby. Like what's more vulnerable than a baby? And and he took on our flesh so that we might be safe. Theologians would say that whatever is assumed can actually be healed. Whatever he became could be healed. So in that space, what we see is that Jesus, choosing to be from this obscure place, to identify with the lowly, made it possible for you and I to be rescued and healed. There's a little book called The Theology of the Ordinary. Listen to what this author says. He says, Jesus is not just going through the motions of being human in order to fast forward to the cross. Jesus is fully human in order that I might become in him fully human once again. Jesus took on my humanity in order that I might, like Adam, live in communion with God in my ordinary life. 
She says, in the incarnation, God took matter to himself so that matter would forever be at home with God. God stepped into our world to actually rescue and redeem it. So let me give you three implications of this. And to do that, I'm going to look at some other passages in the New Testament. First, that he came means he can identify with you. So flip over to Luke chapter 2. If you're in a pew Bible, it's on page 858. If you want to flip, I can just read it. So it's Luke 2. This is Luke's kind of narrative. If you look at the text there, you'll see this return to Nazareth is a subheading. Luke gives us just a little bit of an episode of Jesus as a boy going to the temple with his family on pilgrimage. They would do it every year. And this one particular year as Jesus is in his early teens or, or late childhood actually stays behind and he teaches in the synagogue for a while. So he misses the caravan going home. His parents think they're with you know, his cousins or with his aunts and uncles. They get a couple of days out, realize he's not there. They turn back a little bit panicked to go back into the town to find him and find him there in the temple. And they, they've been searching in great distress, it says. And then he responds as a child in verse 49. He says, this is Luke 2, 49. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be here in my father's house? And they didn't understand what he was saying when he spoke that to them. But he's saying, hey, don't you understand? I come from the father. I have to be here where he's at. So he's fully aware of his divinity is what that means for us. Right? He knew he was God's eternal son. Verse 51, and he went down with them, this one who was God's eternal son, and came to Nazareth, right? We usually like spit when you say it. Came to Nazareth, and he was submissive to his parents. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, which means physically he grew, and he grew in favor with God and with man. This passage says to us, though Jesus was fully divine, 100% God, he was 100% human, and learned how to be submissive to his parents as a child. He had to grow, right? So he can identify with us as we struggle to think through what it means to be human, how, how to grow, how to respond, how to do relationships, struggling. Right? He went through puberty. Kids, this means that he knew what it was like to need his mom, to, to wake up and not feel good and cry out to his mom and need, need help. The Savior of the universe knew that. He knew what it was like to have big storms. And, and again, it's kind of crazy for us to think about because he's fully divine. He never stops being divine. Yet he limits himself and his humanity to experience what we've experienced. He didn't stand outside of that, right? So in the early church, they're wrestling with these realities. And there were some that said, no way. There's no way he could be fully human. Maybe he didn't even have like a real body. Maybe he just looked like a ghost. Some say, no, he probably had a real body. But there actually were some theologians that said, but when he walked, he wouldn't leave footprints. He was that divine. So they're, they're struggling with the idea that he was fully human. And the early church fathers would wrestle with that and say, no, no, he's 100% human. He knows exactly what it's like to be human so that you can be identified with, so that God could actually come to you. He could know your struggles. Right? And just think through what you know about the Gospels. Right? He knows what it's like to be betrayed, what it's like to be abandoned. What's like to be so stressed it has physical implications, right? As he sweats drops of blood. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood. He knows what it's like to be tired and fatigued. He knows what it's like to have family conflict, right? He knows what it's like to be you. He can identify with you. That Jesus came this way. One of the implications is he can identify with you. The second one is that he can actually sympathize with you. So flip over to Hebrews chapter 4. It's a little bit later in the New Testament. It's on page 1002. He not only can he identify with you, right, but he didn't just stand outside of it. He did it so that he could actually relate to us. So Hebrews chapter 4, 
Verse 14 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Therefore, let us draw close with confidence near to the throne of grace that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He can identify with us. He can sympathize with us in our temptation. He goes on in chapter 5, verse 8 to say this. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus knows what it's like to have your back against the wall and to feel like your only option is to take matters into your own hands. We'll see this in a couple more chapters in the book of Matthew when he's tempted from the evil one. That, That means this 2020 that has brought so much chaos and confusion for you where you've been tempted at every turn to lash out in anger, to feel anxiety, to soothe yourself through addiction, to be in spaces where you've despaired. Jesus knows what that is like. He can identify with you he can sympathize with you. And Hebrews, or Philippians chapter 2 says that he modeled for us what it was like to respond to God in our humanity. So Philippians chapter 2, it's on page 980 in your pew Bible. As we do this little tour through the New Testament, we just see another implication here that in his humanity, Jesus actually modeled for us what we most needed. So it says in verse 1, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affliction and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Like, think about things the way Jesus did, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Ladies, one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, fully divine, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus models for us what it's like to respond to the Father in humility, to put others ahead of yourself. Right? He, he makes application from his life as one who actually deals with his humanity, realizes he has needs, and from that place moves towards other people. Right? He's not selfish. He actually is obedient. He is humble in those spaces where he models for us what it's like to respond to God. There are massive implications for just a small little text, far from a throwaway transition text. What we realize is Jesus lived 30 years of his life in hiddenness so that he could identify with you, so he could sympathize with you, and so he could model for you what it looked like to be one who actually followed after God. And those are all really helpful because you get in a jam where you're wondering, what do I do? What do I How do I respond? How do I engage with this? And here we have Jesus not just hovering outside of our existence, but actually coming through the birth canal into it in ways that actually bring redemption. So so some observations, some implications. Quickly, let me make a couple of applications. Kids, I've said this a couple times already, but I'm blown away by the fact that Jesus was a kid. I don't know what you feel at 6, 7, 12, 4 when you're thinking through puberty, when you're going through all kinds of stuff, when you're facing all kinds of struggles, you feel like there's decisions your parents are making that you're not sure what to do with, and they have massive implications for you. Jesus knows what that's like. And here's just one little idea. That means when you pray at night, 
or when you're in a, in a frustrated space where you're not sure what to do and you begin to pray, you're praying to a God who knows what it was like to be a kid once too. You don't have to translate for him. He, he knows, he remembers, he knows what that's like. So kids, when you pray, you're praying to a God who understands you. I know church can use lots of big words. Sometimes we're kind of confused. Even as I'm reading really fast some stuff, you're going like, man, I'm not tracking at all. But when you pray to Jesus, he's tracking with you. He understands you, right? He was a kid, so when you pray, he understands. That's one application. Another one, maybe this is small, but has huge implications for us. The fact that Jesus came as an immigrant into exile, as a poor person in a name, in a town that was scorned, shapes and twists our prejudices just a little bit, right? That our God is the kind of God who goes to outsiders, changes the way we see those that we think are on the outside. That's one side, but also affects our prejudice we have even of our own selves, right? That we actually are the ones who are on the outside that need rescue from the inside. So that Jesus came the way he came has a way to instruct and change and redeem and break down our prejudices. I I don't know what you think about politics. I have no idea how to think about immigration and all those things. But that God himself was an immigrant has some impact in how we think through compassionately with those who are struggling, right? Jesus knows what that's like. There's an application there to put ourselves in that space of need the way the Savior did. Helps us relate to people who have needs. It shifts from the haves and have-nots to those who always need help from the outside. All right, number three, it gives us a vision of life that is actually shaped in the mundane. Here's the idea that 90% of Jesus' life is lived kind of in the hidden moments, but it's not something that's insignificant. It's just hidden. Hidden is not the same as insignificant. Hidden is where you grow. Hidden is where your character is formed. Hidden is where you're actually seen by God. Hidden is where you, you learn what the scripture says. He learned to be obedient in those hidden places. So those long stretches of time that nobody notices, that's actually where you become who you are. Right? It actually validates the, the spaces of the mundane and the common, which means we don't have to grasp to be seen on the outside. It means we don't have to post everything that we do. It means we don't have to have everybody recognize and applaud us. We can actually sit in quietness, asking God then to form our hearts. You are not in a holding pattern for God's activity in your life, waiting for the next thing, whether that's school or marriage or, or, or something with your children. Right? That's not the place that once you get across that line, God will start working in your life. You're never in a holding pattern, actually. This teaches us that God is always at work in the mundane. There's never a day goes by that God is not doing something inside your life, inside your heart. Even when it's quiet, you're learning this obedience. You're learning this trust. You're learning this growth, right? When James says things like consider trials of various kinds, that various kinds means it's not just the extreme things. It's, it's the daily struggles, right? In those spaces, God is actually forming our character, right? And you know this, right? So athletes would say the game is not one and lost on Sunday. It's one and lost during the week or, or in the off season. This last year, I had a chance to coach Lucas's football team, which was more of a blast for me, I think, than it was for him. But we would run sprints, and I would say on a Tuesday, hey, we are winning or losing the game right now. So I'd break up the sprints into quarters, and I would say, all right, we're running for the first quarter. Ready, go. We'd sprint for 50 yards and breathe and come back. And all right, hey, now we're running for the second quarter. Who's going to win the second quarter? And then we'd, hey, we're in the third quarter now. Hey, these last four sprints, this is the fourth quarter. You're winning and losing the fourth quarter right now on Tuesday. When you're exhausted, this is when this actually happens. 
Now, our win-loss record would make you question whether that was an appropriate coaching technique. But, but you get the illustration, right? The, the idea of it's in those hidden places. It's in those workouts that nobody sees. We just have this narrative in our movies. It's when Rocky goes to train in Russia by himself. It's, it's in those spaces. And the hiddenness is where we actually grow. Okay, what that means is the majority of your life that you despise, God is actively at work in you. Right? So Jesus actually learned how to pray. He learned the word of God. He learned how to do battle with the evil one. He learned what the kingdom of God was like. So the next couple of chapters, as he speaks those things and does those things, he learned them during that 30-year period of time. I'd just love for you to have a vision for the mundane, that we're not just living from mountaintop to mountaintop this next year. We're not just waiting for coronavirus to be over so we can get back to life as usual. God is at work. So those 11.30 p.m. moments where you are exhausted and facing all kinds of temptation, that is an amazing dynamic moment of transformation and formation in your life. And nobody will see it. You barely even have words for it. But in that space, God is actually at work in your life. I want us to be the kind of people that embrace hiddenness, that embrace obscurity, not because I don't want to make a difference, not because I don't want to have an impact, but because it's in those places that God actually changes and transforms us. And this is not just my opinion. That's what this text is telling us. In these 30 years that Jesus is living, it wasn't nothing was going on. He's being formed. He's learning this obedience. He's identifying with us. He's sympathizing with us. He's modeling for us in those spaces. The mundane really, really matters. So Paul David Tripp was maybe the first person I heard say something like, if God is not God of the mundane for you, then he's not your Lord. And you've got to be careful with a comment like that, right? It can bring a ton of shame and frustration. But it's actually an invitation to go, hey, see the little moments as profound places where God meets you. So here's a quote from Paul David Tripp. He says this, The little moments of life are profoundly important precisely because they are little moments. We live most of our existence in these mundane, everyday moments. For every huge, life-changing moment we experience, 10,000 insignificant moments happen. The beautiful thing about the gospel is that Jesus Christ offers grace for each of these little moments. The Bible doesn't say his mercies are new once a year. No, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, Lamentation says. Jesus is named Emmanuel, not because he came to earth once, but because he makes you the place where he dwells every single day. This means he is present and active in all the mundane moments of your life. In these small moments, he is delivering every redemptive promise he has made to you. In these unremarkable moments, he is working to rescue you from you and transform you into his likeness. By sovereign grace, your Lord will place you in 10,000 little moments that are designed to take you beyond your character, wisdom, and grace so that you will seek his help and hope and find him. In the lifelong process of change, he is undoing you and rebuilding you again exactly in these small little moments. There's a vision we have to have that God doesn't just meet us on stages and in famous places. He meets us in that mundane. So here's the last thing then. Can we be the kind of people that practice hiddenness? That actually practice encountering God, that ask for his presence. I have a friend who's a counselor and he gives out Brother Lawrence's Practicing the Presence of Jesus as a counseling book saying, hey, I'm not sure what you're dealing with when it comes to anxiety or depression or anger or addiction, but if you can start to remember that Christ is with you, it will begin to change you. To be the kind of people that just expect God to be at work around us because he promises that he is. So we're not asking, God, where are you? We're asking, what are you doing in this place? 
It's not, it's not where are you or are you even noticing. It's what are you doing in this hidden, obscure place, right? So, so this year, I would actually love for us to get into God's word in hidden ways. I want us to read the New Testament together as a people. I don't know what your Bible reading plan is like, and maybe this is too small for you. Maybe it feels too big for you, but, but imagine God meeting you for the next 52 weeks as you encounter him in the New Testament in small, hidden places. So if we read a chapter uh, a, a day for five days a week, we would get through the entire New Testament, right? So we're talking a couple of minutes. But in those hidden little places around your dining room table or in your living room with your children or, or on your way to work or at your lunch break, in those hidden places, God would actually begin to change us. So I'll tell you more next week about how I want us to go after that. But I want to invite us into practicing hiddenness in places like being in God's word. And, and I love the idea that God is everywhere, that he's always at work. There's a little book here called Every Moment Holy. Adrian picked it up. It's, it's liturgies for everyday life. So I was thinking through, like, where have I heard that phrase? And I just actually Googled it and went, oh, yeah, that's that book that's been on my shelf. It's the book that actually Adrian picked up on my birthday and read this liturgy for birthdays. Listen to some of these liturgies. This is amazing to me. The idea is God is always interacting with us. Here's liturgies for those who are employed, for those who are unemployed. Here's a liturgy for preparation of a meal, for the preparation of artisanal meals, for the presentation of a hurried meal. God is there in all those spaces, right? Here's a liturgy for home repairs, for students and scholars, for waiters and waitresses. Here's a liturgy for first responders, for medical providers, for those to read before they take the stage. For those who are changing diapers, here's a liturgy. Here's a liturgy for watching a sunset. Here's a liturgy for watching a storm. Here's a liturgy for the first snow. Here's a liturgy before you consume media. Here's a liturgy for feasting with your friends. Here's a liturgy for moving into a new home. Here's a liturgy for welcoming a new pet. Here's a liturgy for the morning of a yard sale. Here's the liturgy for birthdays. Here's a liturgy for the ritual of your morning coffee. Here's a liturgy for a sick day. Here's a liturgy for the morning of a medical procedure. Here's a liturgy for when the power goes out at your house. Here's a liturgy for when you eat a meal by yourself. Here's a liturgy for one battling destructive desires. Here's a liturgy for the night and days of doubt. Here's a liturgy for those who feel awkward in social gatherings. Here's a liturgy to, to read and say before you go shopping. Here's a liturgy before you pay bills. Here's a liturgy for those who can't sleep. Here's a liturgy for those who are celebrating an anniversary of a loss. Here's a liturgy for those who are facing the slow loss of memory. Here's a liturgy for when you hear sirens, for when you're waiting in line. Do you get the idea? There's moments every day that you experience of life, and they feel really mundane. And in that space, Christ is there. He modeled for you what it was like to be obedient in moments like that. He can sympathize with you for where you feel overwhelmed. And he can actually identify with you in your spaces of need. So he doesn't just stand outside with a clipboard and a lab coat judging and measuring you. He entered into your world so that you could actually have hope for the mundane. 2020 was a whip. Much of us live lives of obscurity and, and we maybe you maximize the mundane. Maybe you feel like you squandered it. Maybe the mundane clobbered you. I don't know how how it's been, but there's more of that to come, actually decades of that to come. And I love actually hearing some of your stories. I love sitting down with people who are in their 80s 
and hearing God's faithfulness through these moments and they tell of their jobs and careers and they tell about where they live and in those places. I'm just mindful of God's faithfulness in their stories. Friends, I'd love for you to start 2021 with the idea that God knows what it's like to live in obscure places and you can welcome him into that spot, right? We're not asking God, where are you? We're asking, what are you doing? And this mundane experience has with it this constant awareness of our neediness precisely so you could have the remarkable experience of constantly having your needs met. God's made you a dependent being. You can't get through the mundane on your own. Christ had to come into that space to rescue us and he did that precisely so you could continually experience God meeting your needs and taking care of you. This God who can identify who could sympathize and who modeled for you, came into that space so you could be rescued and redeemed. I want to put that in front of you as we begin 2021 and pray that God makes us the kind of people that in small spaces encounter transformation over the long haul because God's promised to do that work inside of us. And this experience of dependence we actually practice every Sunday through the taking of communion. Communion is a physical reminder to us that we needed help from the outside. And don't you love that Jesus put it in the form of something that we needed to be nourished by? Something that was at every single meal in the first century, right, when bread and wine. He said, in these common, everyday, mundane elements, I want you to take these and I want you to remember the the amazing, spectacular, life-changing, universe-orbiting around event of the cross, the broken body of Jesus represented in this little mundane bread. And the blood of Jesus, which covers over the sins of all who would trust him for all of eternity forever and is complete that spectacular moment is represented in this little mundane cup that you would have at every single meal right this constant reminder to us of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf so we could be rescued and redeemed so I want you to have that in your mind if you're a follower of Jesus as we prepare to take communion we're gonna sing through that we did last week just give you a, a, a moment to pray and quiet your heart But would you pray and ask God to both meet you in the mundane moments of your life? Would you pray that God would fill those mundane moments of your life? And would you pray that God would would satisfy you where you feel really overwhelmed in those mundane places? And as you taste this little wafer that represents the body of Jesus and you, you taste the juice that represents his blood, remember that he satisfied your biggest need because he lived a mundane life. So in that mundane place, you could actually be rescued and redeemed. This one with the purple top is kind of a regular one. These ones that look like chalices are gluten-free, if that's something that would serve you. They're there in the back of the room if you didn't get, get one. We'll just pray for a moment, and then when you're ready, take communion, and take it as the first application to asking God to come and meet you in mundane places. Make this the first application of the sermon, and then you can think through a variety of other applications as we sing and we pray. But let me pray for us now, and then we'll take communion together. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I would invite you just to sit in your seat and pray. You can still participate with us, not by taking communion, because communion is for those who are trusting in the body and blood of Jesus and the sacrifice on the cross for us. If that's not you, no pressure to take this. You could just pray and ask for God to speak to you, ask for God to help you, ask if this is true for him to actually communicate that to your heart. That would be an appropriate way for you to engage during this season. But for all those who are trusting Christ, let's take communion together. Jesus, we love you. We ask for your help and for your mercy. Would you now speak to us in these really common elements the magnificent truth that you healed us, that you saved us, that you rescued us. God, would you take these really common things 
and speak to us in our mundane moments about our need for you and you satisfying our need. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.